This is an LLD production. On this episode of Shadow Gallery Seminars, proper representation of the neurodiverse in the media with filmmaker and autism advocate Maddie Bull. Since the announcement and release of Sia's film Music, the autism community has been in a frenzy, demanding better representation in the media than the traditional package normally presented. However, the main problem is that not many people know where to begin. How exactly do you portray autism in a way that encompasses the entire spectrum? What are the flaws in how autism is portrayed right now? And crucially, how do you make sure these voices are both authentic and marketable to a mass audience? The answers to all that and more when Shadow Gallery Seminars begins now. Hello from the SF Shadow Gallery. I'm your host, Armand Olia. On November 19th, 2020, Grammy Award-nominated singer Sia announced that her directorial debut film Music and an accompanying album of the same name will be released in February 2021, debuting the trailer via YouTube and her social media accounts. The film centers around a former drug dealer named Zoo, played by Kate Hudson, who upon the death of her grandmother, assumes custody of her autistic younger half-sister Music played by actress, dancer, and longtime SIA collaborator, Maddie Ziegler. Zoo assumes the quote-unquote challenges of raising someone on the spectrum and, with the help of a friend played by the ever-talented Leslie Odom Jr., attempts to adjust all while musical segments take place in the head of Ziegler's character. Within 24 hours, social media would flood with criticism from the autism community, all of them for very legitimate reasons. First, it was announced that despite Sia's supposed four-year research in the making of this movie, she had partnered with the controversial group Autism Speaks, an organization widely hated in the neurodiversity community due to, amongst other reasons, the group's portrayal of autism as a burden, their longtime support of the fraudulent claim that vaccines cause autism, and that autism was a curable disease rather than a disability or a difference. Anyone who has done research for four years let alone four minutes, can tell you that if you want to represent the autism community, partnering with Autism Speaks is an immediate no-no. Second, much of what was portrayed in the film is inaccurate information about the vast majority of those on the spectrum, particularly the multiple usages of prone restraint as a calming mechanism for meltdowns. The film makes it seem like it's an ordinary and necessary course of action. However, it is anything but, in fact, it has proven to be deadly. Recently, there have been several deaths from those in the community due to the techniques shown in the film. Finally, there was the controversial casting choice of Maddie Ziegler, a neurotypical actress playing a nonverbal autistic character who did nothing except showing the same negative stereotypes of autism that have been prevalent in the media since the late 1980s. In fact, the vast majority of those on the spectrum are not at all what was portrayed by Ziegler. Many in the community would challenge Sia as to why she did not cast someone autistic in the role, only to have Sia make brash and rude comments to people who simply wanted answers. Said one Twitter user, quote, several autistic actors, myself included, responded to these tweets. We all said we could have acted in it on short notice. These excuses are just that, excuses. The fact of the matter is zero effort was made to include anyone who is actually autistic. Sia's response, quote, maybe you're just a bad actor. 
The casting of Maddie Ziegler and the fact that the film was greenlit in the first place reintroduced a serious topic that has been plaguing those on the spectrum for decades. Proper representation in the media, showing people the truth about what autism and other disorders on the spectrum actually look like, rather than what the public expects to see from watching films or television. As we have discussed before on this program, the media is a powerful tool. Society can be shaped based on how we consume it, and also how it's presented to us. There are very few accurate representations of autism that are not demeaning at this current stage, and even worse, there are not any prevalent actors and content creators who are openly autistic who can change the status quo. So the questions remain, how exactly did we get here? Why is it almost impossible for autism to be portrayed appropriately? Why do studios and creators keep using the same formulaic plot lines regarding autism? Most importantly, what can we do to bring autistic content creators to the front lines and out into the world where they can do the most amount of good? Joining me via satellite is filmmaker, documentarian, and musician Maddie Boll, a recent graduate of the USC School of Cinematic Arts and a longtime autism advocate. She is the writer and director of the short films Wanderer and Cacophony, both of which not only tackle autism and the effects on both those on the spectrum and their families, but they can also be viewed on her website, maddiebowl.myportfolio.com. Maddie Bowl, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. So for those who, um, who are listening, who are hearing you for the first time, um, tell us a little about yourself. Why are you qualified to talk about the autism spectrum and neurodiversity representation in the media? Yeah, absolutely. It's a, certainly a fair question. Um, so my brother, Brayden, uh, has very profound autism, and uh, he's my best friend, my favorite person in the entire world. So naturally, um, I've kind of spent my entire life a part of the autism community, a part of families who are always trying to do what was best for um, whoever in the family was um, on the autism spectrum. And on top of that, Brayden is the reason I got into filmmaking overall, actually. So when I was 11, uh, my mom and I were sitting one day and having a conversation, and she was saying how frustrated she was with all the different looks that Brayden would get just walking around the street. Brayden is pretty neurotypical presenting for the most part when he's just walking around, but every once in a while, he'll have like an outburst or he'll, you know, perform self-stimulation acts with his hands or, or something like that. And it would always drive the craziest looks from people, you know, looks of pure judgment, sometimes disdain even. And it was often directed at my mother, like, how could you let your kid act this way in public sort of thing. And so she was talking to me about how frustrating that was and how she would love to uh, film those reactions and kind of see what that would look like and show this to people as uh, a little bit of a perspective into what it's like to be a part of our family. And so when I was 11, I was thinking about that idea a lot and started to just film Brayden generally. So instead of filming the reactions he was get, I tried to take it from a little bit of a different approach and instead just give people the opportunity to jump into his world. So I started videographing him with just this really cruddy little camera that my family owned. And after filming him for a while, I put together a short film um, that was a little documentary just about his life, about autism generally, what I understood of it at such a young age. Um, and now I've always just really found that I've always just found that as a result of that experience that filmmaking and just media in general is a really powerful way to tell stories and give perspective on people that otherwise maybe you don't understand because you haven't met somebody with autism. You haven't experienced what it's like to be a member of that community. You got into filmmaking and, and 
documenting through um, through your brother. But I also know that your father as well, um, amazing podcaster in his own right, he also tackled autism awareness issues as well. He did. Yeah, you're right. Um, it's so funny to think about now just because he was doing that when I was such a little kid that I have all these memories. Um, so as you mentioned, my, my dad actually started one of the first ever podcasts about autism. It was called Autism Podcast. And this was his attempt to understand the autism community to learn more about what he could do to support my brother. And so he went out there and started interviewing all the best experts in the field um, and really learned so much of that process. So he's um, a great example of how just, I guess, general advocacy has always been a, a big part of my family. My mom is a special educator as well. And she actually founded one of the first ever inclusive programs at an international school. So that provide that requires a little bit of context. I actually, I grew up overseas, just like Armand did. Um, and, and at international schools, it's not exactly this prerequisite that your schools are going to have the educational programs that students need to feel supported just on a wide variety of issues. Um, and so that was always my, my mom's main cause as an educator was she was always looking to open up those programs for students who needed different services um, and make sure they were all provided those. So it's safe to say you've sort of been bathed in this community and with your training in, um, in the cinematic arts, you really have found a platform to, you know, to push it out. And, you know, you're also, let, let's also make this clear to the audience, you're actually neurotypical. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I myself am, am neurotypical. And I think that um, the reason that I've always been so called to include characters with autism in my stories and, and just talk about that experience generally is because I realize that if you're never exposed to this reality, to this truth, it's really easy to come at this from a place of judgment. I'm sure, you know, I don't need to tell you anything about that. There are plenty of people in this world who will see difference or see something even remotely outside of their realm of comfortability and immediately criticize, immediately defensive, all these different things. What I'm trying to find as someone who's neurotypical is bring it more naturally to the conversation. If you're sitting and watching a short film, you might be a lot more open to understanding somebody else's experience than if you see it in your classroom or see it in your workplace where it's easier to just become a gossip and be rude about it. So let's get right to it then, absolutely. So Mark Twain, one of the greatest quotes of all time, a quote that I've repeated, I think now five times since the show began, which is what gets into the trouble is not what we don't know, it's what we know for sure that just ain't so. So we're going to get started on that. We're going to first start off on what we know that is proven. Now, with what we've been seeing, and I, I think I've touched upon this on the website, and I've also touched upon this in previous episodes, autism is, there's only really one sort of mode that it's portrayed in, and we need to probably go back to 1989 in regards to a little film, an Oscar-winning film called Rain Man, which um, pretty much launched the whole autism awareness movement in the media. Right, exactly. And what that film did essentially is also propel this idea of people with autism as being savants. And so for anybody who isn't aware of that terminology, that essentially means that an individual with autism is extremely gifted at one or several different realms but typically cannot perform others to any degree at all. So it's really a game of extremes. And that simply isn't the case for the wide variety of individuals who exist within the autism spectrum. So as you're saying, Rain Man has sort of kicked off a certain precedent, right? And I think what's really interesting about the entertainment world and just filmmaking in general is that once something is set as the precedent, it is repeated and repeated and repeated until individuals who 
aren't appreciative of that precedent speak up and start making noise and refuse to see the films and begin to essentially hassle the creators to do better and, and create more. And so it's, it's always interesting to look back at Rain Man and look at where we are now. And unfortunately, I'm not sure there's been all that much change. I mean, we also have neurotypical actors playing those on the spectrum. And, I, and I'm going to just preface this here right now for every listener here. I like Rain Man. I think it's a great movie. And for its time, it's amazing. Dustin Hoffman earned his Oscar for that. But keep in mind that was 30 years ago. Nowadays, we have more awareness. We know people on the spectrum more. There are probably more autistic actors who are openly out on the spectrum that we can now put in these films and they can bring their own sort of perspective to it. And yet that still doesn't happen. Exactly. Totally agree with you. And I think a lot of people would feel the same as you, that Rain Man was a film that they loved growing up or might have been their first ever introduction to the word autism even. You know, I wouldn't even say that's all that drastic to say. So I think what's important as we continue today talking about, you know, different representations and different actors playing this or that role is understanding that due to the fact that film is art, it is subjective. And therefore, throughout all these conversations, you have to look at the gray areas, right? So we have to think about when was this made? Who were the main players at the time? What was general perception? But also understanding that while you can hand people sort of free passes in that sense, um, it's also really important to come at it from that critical end so that we can continue to push forward in this realm. And I think also like we have like multiple categories of autism portrayal. We have those who are flat out said that they're autistic and that's like sort of the rain man's, the, the musics of the world. But then there's a category, which I freaking love that doesn't get any credit those who clearly are, but it will never, ever be addressed. So here's an example. You're um, Temperance Brennan's from, uh, from Bones, um, Sheldon Cooper. Oh, Abed Nadir, come on, from Community. They have teased so many times that he is on the spectrum. And he, even he's made a joke about that a few times. So why do you think that they don't address and say, oh, by the way, they're on the spectrum? That's a really good question. I think my initial thought to that is it's actually a really powerful way to be inclusive by not overtly discussing a topic, but still representing an individual in a way that isn't offensive, but rather, I don't think accurate's necessarily the right word. I would say true to the character that they've written in a way that can have certain elements of an individual that is typically classified on the autism spectrum or not. I think that when you throw a character like that into the mix and you keep them as a plot line, you keep developing their character, that's an awesome way to give individuals in real life the chance to see what they should be doing on screen, right? So then you see like, oh, great, this is an individual who hilariously mixes with this group in the show community, for example. I mean, Abed is a hilarious character and his friendship with Donald Glover is iconic. And the fact that we don't necessarily see him as the character with autism, I think makes it all the more powerful that two individuals who may or may not be operating with a similar way of thinking can still be the best of friends and have a great time. The mask of the TV shows. And by the way, Danny Pudi, if you're listening to this, we love you here. <laughs> no, you're, you're welcome on the show anytime. <laughs> but, but in any case, like it, it, it gets annoying. I think after a while that they don't like come out about it. And like, and a thing that I think people also forget is that with the, the phrases, if you've met one person with autism, you've met, one person with autism. So like, I mean, you know, obviously if you autistic people, you know, myself, your brother, we're two very different people, not only in how it affects us, but also in how we act and how we do it. We're, we're individuals, you know? Absolutely. I think that that's one thing that 
I was always sort of privy to is, is that knowledge and that information just based on how I grew up with my brother and with my family being so involved in, you know, different elements of supporting the, the community that, again, like you said, when you've met one person, you might understand their experience. And the, the fact of the matter is that it could be completely different from somebody else's who's also on the autism spectrum. And so I think one thing that media should feel challenged to do is honor that. And instead of painting these really broad strokes of this is this person and you can identify them because you've seen it in Rain Man or you've seen it and you know what I'm saying? I think instead it's it's so much stronger to represent all those different facets of what an individual can be and what you know this diagnosis can mean to them and their families. Yeah. I mean, in terms of how you write your films, in terms of because you you do write a lot of autistic characters in there. How exactly do you approach that? Yeah, I think for me, I've actually never so for me, I'm yet to write a character with high functioning autism or just somebody who um, I'm, I tend to write my characters a lot more based on what I know, which is my brother and what he's like in certain situations and what sort of things make him happy versus make him feel, you know, all the sort of range of difficult emotions that sometimes come with an oversensitive sensory system or all those things. And so that's always been my approach is to only write what I know. And I think that that has allowed me a certain opportunity to feel as though my work is authentic because I'm just writing what I know. Where I think that, you know, that's certainly the challenge for a lot of writers in, in larger productions and sort of the studio systems is that many of these people probably have never <laughs> really engaged with the community and then suddenly are asked to write these characters. And so what are they gonna do? They're gonna go to Wikipedia and they're gonna look up, you know, who's the most famous person with autism and how did they carry themselves? And, you know, this sort of thing that just ends up in a very redundant portrayal. So my approach has always been to comment it from a place of what I know is true from my experience specifically. And I've been pretty unrelenting and compromising on that part so far. I mean, and I've seen your work. You you do a very good job in terms of representing that population of the spectrums. But in terms of if you ever decide to write a high-functioning character, how would you personally approach it? Yeah, I love that question because I really do see that in the future for me. I think that's definitely something I would love to tackle and, you know, write accurately. I think that what is so painfully easy to do that I think a lot of people just skip entirely is team up with someone on the spectrum. You know, you can most certainly write an incredible piece with an individual who can accurately tell you what their experience is like or provide you to certain resources that they maybe had growing up that you haven't been familiarized with. And I think it's that sort of teamwork that can bring out a really interesting storyline and something that is true and accurate. So I think the, the best thing to do is get the right people attached and, and understanding different perspectives and, and figuring out really how to create a character first as opposed to an identity first. I think that's the really important piece that sometimes people forget about is that individuals with autism are people before that, right? And so if you don't think about what is this character, what do they like, how do they approach things before you've thought about their diagnosis, it's really difficult to present a fully fleshed out character as opposed to just sort of a stereotype. So with that in mind, obviously we got to do the three to build the character first, give it some dimension and then inject the autism to see what that what what happened with there but so understanding that let's go into um good representations versus bad representations based on what we've seen so what are a few good examples of autism portrayed in the media and uh, why do you think that's the case i like this question so i want to preface it because i've been doing a lot of thinking about this and i want to preface it with i can't say i've ever seen 
a stellar representation due to the fact that I think particularly when it comes to pieces of media that are getting broadcast mainstream, they're being created and funded by giant studios that don't green light, you know, so to speak, experimental representations or things that haven't been specifically seen and data tested before. And so as a result, I think we haven't really seen an awesome representation of, of anybody. And due to the fact that it is unfortunately still very rare to see that representation at all, we haven't been able to see sort of the gambit of experiences enough to also pinpoint different opportunities. So this is a great, you know, I would love to have a conversation about this is a great representation of, of this kind of person who also is on the spectrum, you know, because there's such an intersectionality of lived experiences with people from the community. But with that being said, I do have a couple of, you know, different pieces that I've loved and I know my family has loved too. And I don't know if you'll agree with me on this, Armand, but I loved watching Atypical. And I know that, yeah, it's it's got certainly, I wouldn't say it's a perfect representation, but what I think was so powerful about it for me specifically, and maybe this isn't exactly, you know, your question, but what they did a great job of was building an entire community of individuals surrounding this one person on the spectrum. So I think that sort of the interactions that the characters have with each other is really powerful and really succinct. And for the first time I saw kind of myself in Sam's older sister or younger sister, Casey, because I'm totally that way to my brother, you know, like the little teasing and the, all this funny stuff that only a sister is allowed to do. But if someone else came up and said that to my brother, you know, I would probably take him outside and swing, you know, <laughs> 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 but I think that the show atypical does a good job of, of creating that network of individuals around someone on the spectrum. Yeah. And plus, and I, I will say, I love the first season of atypical after that, it sort of became a little wishy-washy in terms of the storyline, and I sort of um, fell out of favor with it. But I will give it its props. It does a very good job of representing people on the spectrum. And they actually have people on the spectrum as part of its cast. Like, when, like obviously not the lead, but he, he's not, and we will get into that in a moment. But at least when they build it, they have some representation and go, ah, this is what different people on the spectrum act like. And these are genuine autistic actors. When he does group therapy, there are people on the spectrum. Like, they aren't actors who are just brought in. They are people who understand what, what it's like to be on there, understand the challenges, understand the benefits, understand every aspect of it, and are able to incorporate that into a character. You know? It's it's something that's so rarely seen. So I agree with you on Atypical. I mean, the only thing I really have to complain about is the storyline. But honestly, eh, I think different strokes are different folks. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. And I think that another thing I've been thinking about is – Television is a stronger medium, in my opinion, to portray somebody in the spectrum over film. Agreed. Because you have so much more time. You have a lot more time to explore this individual, understand, you know, sort of their day-to-day -day experience. Where in a film, you're often trying to jam so much in that it can be a lot easier to sort of paint those broad strokes. And I think that's a little bit where Sia's new film, Music, is, is failing, is because in addition to trying to show somebody with profound autism, you also have a whole slew of other really involved characters who've got their own plot lines. And so it's really difficult to put all of these large personalities into a short hour and a half, two hour feature film. So she certainly had her work cut out for her from the beginning with this kind of goal. And actually, is it cool if I just kind of jump into my thoughts on that movie a little bit? Go for it. Okay. So- 
In terms of the movie, I don't plan to watch the movie because of what I've understood members of the community, how they feel about it is so strong and so frustrated that I don't think I could really get behind the movie generally. But reading more about sort of the situation and what they've gone through and all these things, I, I just sort of developed a few thoughts that I was hoping to share. I feel that the fact that Sia tried to cast somebody on the spectrum shouldn't be forgotten. And I'm not saying, you know, this is not my justification, like, oh, it's a great movie, everybody should go see it. But I think that there's sort of, you know, like I was saying before, you have to contextualize everything in this realm. And so I think the fact that she tried is really important. The fact that it failed may or may not have been Sia's fault. We simply don't know all the specifics about that. But what she really has failed to do is take that with grace. So when members of the community have reached out and said, hey, we don't really like what you're doing. We don't appreciate this. It doesn't represent us the way that we want to be seen on screen. She hasn't taken that and made her amends. She hasn't taken that and seemed to try and have any sort of learning experience from it. Unfortunately, instead, she's getting extremely defensive and coming at it with, why don't you watch my effing movie first, which I literally read in a tweet. And when you act that way, the problem is, Sia, this isn't your community necessarily to represent. And so if you're going to throw your best wishes at the wall and something comes back that's different than what you were hoping, you better be willing and ready to accept that. And I think that's a really important element of portraying individuals within this community and kind of something that as a filmmaker, I always want to take forward too, is let's say I put out a film that I think is true to a certain representation and I get some flack for it that's for me to learn. That's for me to change. That's for me to grow. That's not for me to get defensive and for me to start telling other people that they're wrong when it's sort of their community. <laughs> this isn't her thing. That's what I simply don't understand and, and really have lost a little bit of respect for, for that creative process for. Already on Rotten Tomatoes, I, I checked the score actually this morning. It's 29% already on Rotten Tomatoes. Only two critics have, only two critics have come out in support of this film. And even then it's barely in support you know like like the reviews i think are like two and a half stars out of five like it's like two 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 and a half stars like no no one thinks it's a good movie you know like if, if it was a good movie i think this would be more of an issue like it's good but oh my god really you know it's just that's <laughs> exactly and you know that actually leads me to something i've been thinking about also in that when i think about strong representations versus poor representations of individuals on the spectrum one emerging medium that I think no one is talking about enough is the digital and online presence of individuals on the spectrum. So it's a little bit divorced of the narrative form of a film and, you know, a film or a television series. But I've been watching some incredible creators like Paige Lale on TikTok and YouTube and these these brave, brave individuals who get out there. They are so open with how they feel about situations and what they think. And I just think that the digital space is this really great emerging opportunity to truly engage with the community and hear how they feel about certain things, change your own perspectives and learn a little bit of something every single time you interact with some of their content, which is also, by the way, hilarious and well done. These are performers. You know, these are individuals who totally deserve the platform that they've created for themselves. And I hope to see you know, their popularity continue to rise and eventually see them be the ones in the writer's room telling these stories because they are more than deserving of that. Absolutely. So back to portrayals now for a second, because yeah, I mean, my, my thoughts on Sia's film, I think are 
pretty obvious I've called already for a boycott on that film because it is so I'm I'm, I'm gonna be I'm gonna call it like I see it it is blatantly disrespectful to um to a lot of people on, in that community and Sia's response I hate to use a pun here but Sia face the music you know yeah, you got to face the music on this. I mean, you really have hurt a lot of people in this community, myself included. And, you know, if people aren't going to like your film, get over it. Try to do something positive. Try to learn from this. Don't tell people to go F off. You know, it's just that's just not the way you should do it. Totally agree with you. I was going to ask you this, Arman. What do you think generally about when large names like Sia engage with the community it does inevitably bring a larger amount of conversation to the general public than on sort of a a day-to-day basis when a large star isn't releasing a huge film of this nature. So how do you feel about that element generally? Not necessarily that whether or not the film was good, but just the fact that it's sparking conversation and getting people who aren't always involved to speak. I think, again, it's part of the natural um, media ebb and flow in terms of awareness to issues. I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example, and I'm, I'm probably going to get a little flack for saying this, but I'm going to be honest here. I think most people wouldn't have been so Black Lives Matter right now if the George Floyd footage hadn't been put up on the um, on, on the web. I'm not saying, like, don't be anti-BLM. I'm very much pro-BLM. But, you know, it, it wouldn't have been as massive as it was if we didn't see the footage of Chauvin putting his neck down and putting his knee on George Floyd's neck. We wouldn't have been so up in arms about what's going on at the board if we didn't see the the photos and the videos and all that. Like we need to be able to see it in order to be aware of it. That's just the culture that we're in right now. And it's not really 100% a fault of our own. It's just, there's so many things that are going on that we want to pay attention to. It's, It's very selective. We can't pay attention to everything all at once. You know, the last time I heard about something like this even happening was when William Shatner got into a little hot water with the ASAN because he's an Autism Speak supporter. So he obviously did something very similar to Sia. He won't get that much controversy, though, because, I mean, Shatner is a legend and, you know, right, deservedly so. And Sia is, well, whatever she is now. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I didn't really care much for Sia's music before this, and I will never care for it again. And Shatter was Captain Kirk. He was Denny Crane. So I'll give him a, it's not a pass, but <laughs> he's a legend. You know, you can't, and he's also like, what? In his late seventies, early eighties, you really expecting to change at this point? I don't know. I think, I think that does bring up a certain question. That's a little bit of a tangent to what we were talking about, but I do wonder because Sia has some incredible music just from an objective viewpoint. Her voice is one that is going to be classified as one of the best of our generation, simply. And she's been able to create a lot of new kinds of visual representations of things that are incredible, you know, for for lack of more deserved words. It's just like mind-blowing some of the things that she's been able to come up with. And so I worry, I worry about that comparison because I think to many, she is a legend and kind of the same way that you were saying William Shatner is. And so I do think that there is an interesting amount of heat coming for somebody like Sia that hasn't come for people in the past when they've done similar things. But again, if we put it into the sort of question of context that I was talking about at the beginning of the show, we do have a lot more understanding now. And we we do have a lot more of those tools. And it is clear through social media how easy it would have been for her to connect 
with many autistic actors. And so I, I sort of understand both sides to it, but I think it's just an overall a very tricky question. You know, when someone does something like this, what does their legacy look like? How is that going to affect them in the future? Can you divorce the person from the craft? You know, all those different questions simply come into play. So um, let's also just get into quickly um, allistic actors playing those on the spectrum and sort of the actor's role in all this because Maddie Ziegler has been getting somewhat flack for doing this. And I think there are two sides to every story on this one. I mean, you got to consider Ziegler partially did this out of loyalty to Sia because they've been collaborators for God knows how long, you know? Yeah. And she's, did you know that she's actually, Sia is actually Maddie Ziegler's godmother? Yeah, I did know that. Well. Yeah. So they have very tight. So totally agree with you there. Yeah. But then what, like what level of accountability does Maddie Ziegler have with this? Because she could have easily just said, no, she could have. I mean, I get why she didn't, but she could have easily have done that or said, oh, hey, like I'm seeing this and I don't think this is right. So I, I, I can have some level of input on this. So the question yeah. is, why didn't she? Yeah, well, correct me if I'm wrong. Maddie Ziegler is not 18 yet, right? I think she's 20, actually, because I know. Oh, no. I think she's a couple <laughs> years younger than I am. We're we're both born oh, in Pittsburgh, I so I think like I think she's I, I think she's twenty now. Like uh, okay, I'm almost positive. okay. See, I always associated her with being on Dance Moms, and so in my head, she's a child. You know, yeah. <laughs> so I was gonna say if she's still a child, then that's a different. Oh yeah, she's she's eighteen. She'll be nineteen this year. She's eighteen, so she's newly eighteen. She's got the influence of someone who has literally taken her career and magnified it and exploded it beyond probably her wildest dreams, right? Yeah. And so when you think of it, absolutely, when you think of it from that perspective, I don't think she necessarily felt she had a choice in the matter. I'm not Maddie Ziegler. I'm Maddie Bowl. So I you know, can't <laughs> wrong really Maddie, necessarily, I know. right, wrong Maddie. So I can't necessarily, you know, decide what was going through her head. But when it comes to generally the power of the actor in these sort of realms, it should not, it should not be slept on. It really is something that is immense. Actors in the business, especially as, projects you know especially as you kind of go up the chain and start working on projects and being a part of projects that are huge amounts of money actors call a lot of the shots any sort of demands that they have pretty much have to be addressed because at this point the power of having the right person involved in your project is what allows it to make or break is what allows it to get into this theater versus that theater I mean they have an insane amount of power and so I really do think that it is sort of up to the actors to say that something is correct or incorrect. Um, I think that that is sort of an accountability that should be placed on them a little bit heavier than it is at the moment. I certainly can understand the alternate perspective, though, of that, well, this is a job. I've been hired for the job. I'm going to carry out the job. And for that, I do certainly understand. But I think that when you're not just someone who's been hired for the job, rather you're an entire persona that is being asked to back and abide this production and see it through fruition. Understanding your power and understanding your say in something like this, I feel needs to be understood more from the role of the actor. But would you say though that the bigger responsibility would not necessarily be from the actor, be more from the the writers and the directors and the studio heads who are sort of behind the scenes setting up the story, setting up the world that these characters are going through. I, I agree to an extent. I think that in many ways, so it's sort of this, it's a difficult conversation. And this is a question that comes up 
with all kinds of representation in the media, right? And it's sort of the chicken and the egg story of you have to have something that's been successful in this business to then be replicated over and over simply due to the fact that number one, media has a huge impact on the world. Yes. But number two, it's strictly financial, right? So if you're going to get investors to put millions of dollars into a project, they want to have seen the data that before this has worked. And so it's this really challenging thing of the chicken and the egg where it's it's sort of a, a conversation of, okay, I'm the director of this film, I'm the producer of this film, I know that this A-list actor will attach and then this story is going to be heard, maybe not in the way that I would like it to be heard, but it will be heard by many, many more people if this person is attached. That's so that's another part of this conversation that makes it so difficult is that entertainment, Hollywood, just filmmakers in general have created this system where they're always going to be taking a risk when it comes to casting someone that can truly and accurately portray a character that they have written if they don't necessarily have the A-list sort of status yet. Yeah, I mean, in that case, and I, I always bring this up because some people ask me, Armand, like, don't you have a problem with Freddie Highmore playing the good doctor or Claire Danes playing, playing Temple Grandin? And I honestly say no, because in the case of both, they're written so well and they're written so beautifully in terms of their portrayal that like when they add something to it, it makes sense. They're able to understand it's the character first and the autism second. Absolutely. And if someone can bring that to a story and also allow it to be seen in theaters and you know broadcast in more ways than may have happened with someone that didn't have that same acclaim then i do think that that's a really powerful opportunity what i hope is that sort of all of this can build on itself right so when we think about okay well if we're here for point we're at point a how do we get to point b i think it's a combination of sort of all the things that we're talking about we've got to get more stories that involve neurodiverse characters out into the world first Unfortunately, I do think that is going to mean not by what I would like to see necessarily, but I think just sort of by how the system tends to go historically, I think what we're going to see is more characters who are neurodiverse being played by neurotypical individuals. And then as that increases, and we sort of see that in the mix a lot more than, you know, oh my gosh, a movie with a character with autism is coming out when that is no longer the narrative. And instead it's just, oh, a Steven Spielberg movie is coming out, something like that, who happens to have a neurodiverse character, then we're going to be able to sort of tell these stories far more accurately because we've got one part lined up and then next we can build upon the foundation as it comes. And I think that it's going to take, a, a, it's, I think it's going to take effort from every side of that puzzle. So the writers, the directors, the producers, the actors, and also most importantly, individuals who consume media. I think that all of us are going to have to work together in building up these stories and building up the individuals who ought to play these. And I feel, I feel it completely. And I'm going to go back to The Good Doctor as a great example, because when I first heard about The Good Doctor, I didn't know that there was an autistic character before I even saw the trailer. All I knew was David Shore, who's the producer, uh, who was the producer for House, which I, I love House, is going to be doing a medical drama, which of course House is a medical drama. So it's very, so obviously David Shore knows what he's doing. It's an adaptation of a South Korean television series. Freddie Highmore is attached to the project. And I loved him in Charlie and Chocolate Factory, Finding Neverland, loved him in Base Motel. And then I'm like, oh, okay, okay, I got to check the trailer. Richard Schiff is in it. And I love The West Wing. I love Toby Ziegler. It's one of my favorite characters. So I'm seeing that. And then I hear, 
oh, by the way, Sean Murphy has autism. And I'm thinking to myself, whoa, they're, they're really going to do this? Is this, is this really happening? So that anticipation builds up. And then it's a matter of whether or not the show can execute, can live up to the hype, or just crashes and burns. And luckily, from the pilot onward, Good Doctor lived up to the hype. You know, that's why you see, like, on the spectrum, like, there is very little division when it comes to that show, even when Sean Murphy, the autistic good doctor, the quote-unquote good doctor, is not played by an autistic person. Because, you know, it's... People, I don't think, see him anymore as autistic. They see him as this compelling character on television, which I don't even know why they should be separate categories and they should just be one and the same in this case. Yeah, definitely hear you. I think that goes back to, you know, what we were talking about earlier, where television as a medium really has a much stronger chance at presenting individuals on the spectrum more appropriately, more accurately, and more truthfully, because you get the opportunity to show an individual in so many different scenarios, right? So with The Good Doctor, we see him fall in love. We see him tackling these huge medical issues. We see him, you know, developing friendships and going through workplace issues day to day. I think that when you get to understand a character so deeply, as the actor was able to do just over time, you can certainly see that that is a character before that is a condition that it's a role before it's a broad stroke portrayal stereotyped into one person. And so I think that's sort of my best guess as to why The Good Doctor hasn't received so much flack um, is just due to the fact that they took their time with it and they showed such a variety of opportunities for a character. And also we have to you know think about the fact that when we put this into context, this was one of the first shows that kind of came out and attempted to do this. And so I think another reason that it hasn't caused such division is because this was a community that had so rarely seen themselves on screen. And so for the first time for this to happen and for it to be done by a likable character in a highly respected role of being a doctor of all things, then that's sort of why I think it had such a strong public perception. And that lends itself too to when we talk about current representations, when we you know loop it back to music with Sia, now that this is not the first time that an individual with autism is being presented, now people, rightfully so, are speaking up a little bit more about what it means and, and what they feel needs to happen in order to feel honored by the presentation they see on the screen. And on that note, we are gonna take a very quick break. When we come back, we will be answering your panelists' questions, so please do not go away. This episode of Shadow Gallery Seminars is sponsored by ND Renegade. There are a lot of causes nowadays that get massive amounts of awareness. It feels like almost every day there's a protest going on somewhere in the world recognizing equality and fairness for all types of differences including sexual orientation, race, or gender. And yet there is one cause seldom discussed because apparently people don't seem to feel the need to. That issue is neurodiversity rights. For many people with conditions such as autism and other spectrum disorders, ADHD, dyspraxia, dysgraphia, apraxia, or dyslexia, just to name a few, it can be very frustrating not to be heard or represented in a world where societal fairness is the goal. Thus, the quantity and quality of voices needed for this to be recognized are a priority. ND Renegade, for which I'm a brand ambassador, focuses on raising awareness for neurodiversity issues. 
using products such as t-shirts, hoodies, and sweatshirts. They want, just like Shadow Gallery seminars, to shine a light on issues that are rarely thought or talked about and to make those who are neurodiverse, like me, proud of their differences. As of this taping, I'm wearing one of their shirts with the Maui word for autistic, Takiwaranga, which literally translates to in their own space and time. Amazing, huh? Another amazing fact about ND Renegade's products is that all ND Renegade products are ethically sourced. All inks used in the printing process are water-based, non-toxic, vegan, eco-friendly, and disposed of according to supplier guidelines to ensure no harm to the environment. The poly bags used in their packaging are recyclable, low-density polyethylene, as well as FDA and USDA compliant. Not only that, but when you buy these products, you can wear them knowing they were made without sweatshops, child labor, forced involuntary or traffic labor, harassment, abuse, and corporal punishment. All workers receive mandated wages, allowances, and benefits paid according to law, safe and healthy work environments, and safe and healthy housing where provided. In other words, these are products that are amazing on all fronts. It's an absolute win no matter which way you look at it. And thanks to the fine folks at ND Renegade, if you use the code SHADOW15 at checkout, you get 15% off your order. That's right, use the code SHADOW15 at checkout and you get 15% off your order. So folks, join the Neuro Tribe and be a renegade with ND Renegade. And we are back uh, from commercial break. Now, there's one little addition I forgot to mention in that spot. And I want to give a shout out first to ND Renegade for, um, for doing this because um, you guys really are amazing. And you guys are doing some great work that not many companies have really done yet. But we are the first podcast to ever partner with ND Renegade. We now have a shirt out, the uh, Proudly Authentic T-shirt, which... Um, we designed in conjunction with ND Renegade. And yeah, it, it's really insane. I ordered mine already. It's coming in in the next few days. So by the time the episode airs, like I will be, I'll be gladly wearing it, you know? So yeah, crazy, right? Yeah, that's awesome. I was looking at the design and it looks really cool. And I love the fact that Shadow Galleries, the logo is highlighted on it. And I think the the part that excites me the most when you told me is that there's no tags on it. Brilliant. Simply brilliant for anybody who hates the feeling of tags scratching on their back. This will definitely satisfy a lot of authentic folks out there. Yep. Or scratching on their side, I must add. <laughs> no, because I swear to you, the, the most annoying thing I have when I put a sh any shirt on, like you look at these old Navy shirts, they have these little tags on the side saying what size there are. Right. And after a while, it's so annoying. So you try to rip them out and then you end up ripping a giant hole in the side of the shirt. Right, because it's it's lined up with the seaming. Yep. <laughs> Uh, very frustrating absolutely but thank you ND Renegade for all of that again code shadow 15 or you can use my own code which is NDR Armand 15 it's NDR A-R-M-O-N 15 15% off your order I promise no more sponsorship for ND Renegade for the rest of the episode that's the that's the last we're going to say about it because we've given them the just desserts they are absolutely amazing and let's leave it at that Anyway, um, another little tradition that we have at Shadow Gallery Seminars, besides the constant plugging of ND Renegade, is um, we answer your questions. So I'm happy to say 
I mean, the turnout on this one wasn't as big as the last few ones. And I asked you guys why. It's because you guys didn't really, really know where to begin with the questions. But you know what? The questions we ended up getting, they were great. I think we covered a few of them in, um, in the first half. So we're going to go over the second half now. You ready, Maddie? Absolutely. Let's do it. All right. First question. Um, what do you think was the best and also worst portrayal of autism in Hollywood? Yeah, well, I think we touched upon this a little bit at the front half of the show, just thinking about the fact that I can't say it's the easiest thing to put into best and worst because all of it requires a little bit of a breaking down process, right? Because of the fact that we haven't simply seen enough representation where we can say this is the best, this is the worst, because every representation brings its own strength and also brings its elements that should be worked on and improved in the future. That being said, I think um, one representation of sort of profound autism or someone that um, lines up a little bit more with, you know, my brother, for example, who's nonverbal is what's eating Gilbert's grapes and Leo DiCaprio in that. Yeah, I think that was a really powerful representation. Certainly, you know, it brings into the conversation who should play these kinds of roles. But what I think it did so well what I think that movie did so well of is providing a lot more of an intersectional sort of approach to this kind of character, his family and his situation in the fact that we were seeing an impoverished community. Because I think that, you know, through other representations of autism that we've seen, we've seen it in context like The Good Doctor, which we have a lot of great things to say about. One thing we have to consider there is that is somebody in a very high up position. So, you know, in society, the doctors are considered the top of the top for the most part. But autism is something that is so very intersectional. There are individuals from the community from all kinds of socioeconomic statuses, from all sorts of sort of cognitive abilities and deficits. And so I really appreciated watching that movie, even though it's it's quite old now, but I really appreciated watching it as a kid and saying, oh, I... I really see a lot of the traits in Gilbert, in my brother, and it was really unique for me to be able to see that and see that all kinds of families can sort of feel the way that my family was feeling. And I think DiCaprio was great in that too. I mean, it's a very underrated film and that's not necessarily the biggest plot point of Gilbert Grape. Obviously the main thing is just the, um, the tyrannical mother figure of that. But, but you know, the fact that Leo DiCaprio did what he did in that movie and considering the time frame when it was done and considering how great of an actor DiCaprio is, I think that's an amazing portrayal. Um, but in terms of me of the best that I've seen personally, uh, it's a tie actually. Um, it would come down to either Claire Dane's representation of Temple Grandin, but then again, it's based on an actual person in this case and the book, Thinking in Pictures, which we'll get to that in a moment, um, was very good. It was very obvious of what, you know, was going on in Temple's head. And then, of course, when you have a director like Mick Jackson, it was a very similar style of visual thinking. You have a great cast like um, Claire Days, Julia Armand, David Strahan. I mean, these guys are top of the top of the top. They're very respectful of the source material. So, yeah, I mean, it's a little, I'm not going to say easier compared to what my second choice would have been, but it definitely is a lot less difficult knowing it's based on an actual person. Yeah. And on that note, I would actually love to bring up the Steve Jobs movie because even yes. though Steve Jobs isn't someone who ever outright discussed whether or not he was a member of- Are we talking the, the Sorkin version or the one with Ashton Kutcher? The Ashton Kutcher version for me. Oh God. Okay. <laughs> 
Oh, that was, Not that was as big such of a, a bad fan. movie. I'm sorry. That was okay. So bad. Well, we could talk about the conventions of the movie, but I was seeing it more particularly as Ashton's portrayal, I thought was pretty powerful, just in the sense that he was able to show some of the, I guess, what we would call quirks of Steve Jobs um, in the ways that he interacted with his um, co-workers and, and, you know, co-creators and things like that, but also just portraying the simple brilliance of Steve Jobs. And again, like I was talking about the intersectionality of this community and how many people fall all over the map. Um, the fact that some of our greatest creators ever of all time, most likely are autistic themselves is a really important portrayal. And that actually leads me to think about also, you know, who I was just thinking about, um, it just escaped me. <laughs> Who was it? Um, I was thinking about, oh, another representation of someone who has never been, you know, forthright with whether or not they're on the spectrum is um, Mozart. Is Mark Zuckerberg in Zuckerberg. the social network. Oh, that's right. And I thought that that portrayal of his character, you know, whether or not he is actually someone who is on the spectrum, even though many people do believe, right? Many people are quite sure that he is. That was a fascinating sort of way of showing a character because of the fact that he's not a likable character. He's simply not. And, you know, a lot of what he does is really easy to not condone and really not be happy with. And so, again, showing somebody as a character first before their diagnosis in that portrayal of somebody, I think, is a really interesting addition to this conversation as i was saying though before um before you got into that for me it was a tie it was between temple grandin and then this is where it gets really interesting because both of these roles were researched at the same time and i know that because the actor who plays the character I'm about to say is the husband of claire danes um this was at the same time a film called adam which was i was introduced to that by a friend of mine uh, sammy norberg who now lives in colorado and amazing person was very supportive actually she was in the room when i learned that i was autistic um yeah she, she was there and uh we watched this film together and i think it's a good representation and there are some elements obviously that i don't necessarily identify with but then again like like i said one person you meet one person with autism you meet one person with autism so it affects people differently but it's such a great storyline and the character himself is so well fleshed out and it's just, it's so much fun to watch. It was also heartbreaking as well. It's, it's just so well done as a film. And I don't think it gets as much credit as it deserves because for, it's, for what autism portrayals are now, he did very well. And, you know, the fact is both of them clearly, both Claire Danes and um, I think his name is uh, Hugh Dancy is the name of the actor. They both obviously meticulously researched their role. And they both did a very, very wonderful job. But that's anyway our best ones. How about the worst? Obviously, music is going to be up there. Yeah, I think unfortunately, just from the short, you know, minute and a half that I saw of music, it was pretty obvious to me what they were doing. I think actually that brings a certain point that I wanted to bring up also in that the difficulty of portraying somebody on the spectrum that is nonverbal, that may have physical disabilities as well, you know, sort of. So I think one part of this conversation that lends itself to showing that music really wasn't the best portrayal thus far, and in fact, kind of easily makes it on Armand and I's worst <laughs> list of portrayals, is that they were trying to show somebody who is more affected with autism, right? This is an individual who has a slight physical 
disability is walking a certain sort of way in the trailer. And when you're showing somebody on that level of the spectrum, it's so easy for it to lean into mockery because of the fact that simply how could you understand someone's perspective if you don't have it yourself? It really requires the level of research and understanding that this film simply wasn't given. So I think that had that film taken a lot more time, doing a lot, done a lot more research, if Maddie Ziegler had spent a lot of time with individuals who were more affected on the autism spectrum, we might have seen a stronger portrayal. But simply when you have a high budget movie like this, that's going to be, you know, put out to large numbers of people, it's a really, really challenging role to portray and do well. So, I mean, it's safe to say on the worst portrayal, music is going to be at the top of the list for the both of us. <laughs> I think, I think you're right. Yeah, understatement of the decade, as short as it is, as, as short as the decade's been already. Um, <laughs> yes. So, um, next question. I think this is more towards me, but I think, I mean, I know you don't speak for Braden, obviously, but you can probably point out some things that you've noticed with him. Sure. Um, what is the most challenging aspect to you having autism, and how did you overcome it? Um, I'll go with you first. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that you said up front, you know, that I can't speak for Braden, which is totally true. I think just being the overprotective sister that I am, I've seen a lot kind of throughout throughout his life. And I think one of the hardest parts was, especially when he was younger, um, I would see him very clearly want to engage with other individuals, but because he's nonverbal and really struggled with most social interactions always, it was really challenging um, from my perspective just to watch him so clearly want to connect with other people so clearly want to share in the joy of you know being five years old and be playing at the playground you know simple simple wonders like that um that I think have always been a, a great challenge for him um so I guess you know the other half of that question like how how do you overcome that sort of thing again just speaking from my perspective one thing that I've always tried to do growing up is just sort of you know bring Braden along to a lot of things that I was doing particularly with the friends that I knew and trusted would would take that for what it was, meaning, you know, if Brayden's not necessarily staring you in the eyes and having a long conversation with you, that doesn't mean that he's not there and not having a great time and um, sort of valuing that time with him. So that's always just, you know, one thing that has rested heavy for me. And um, I've always hoped to, you know, do whatever I can to make sure that he feels included in situations. And, you know, I, I, from what I've been seeing and what I've been hearing, you're doing a pretty good job at that. Um, and, in my case, uh, and this is a little bit more difficult to talk about, but I'll be the first one to, to mention it. I'm People who know me know I'm a very social person. I'm very out there and I'm very much like full steam. I don't give it like, I don't, pardon my French, I don't half-ass it. I go all the way, you know? But the problem is, there are many problems with that. Number one, it's not sustainable. Number two, I constantly second guess myself especially amongst people i don't know so when it gets in a social situation i know how to act on a lot of these things but then you sort of like okay like is this appropriate to say is this not appropriate to say is this or this not it gets after a while very 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 exhausting so sometimes like the cracks will show i'll yawn i'll do things like that because i'm getting physically and mentally exhausted um, but I have been able to overcome that for a, a little bit. So like, I'll give you an example. Um, last year, I was at my eldest niece's, 
birthday and she had turned 12. So we were going to be at this restaurant and then we were going to drive back to, uh, to her house. So what I did was after the restaurant bit, we were driving back as a short drive. What I said was my sister was driving the car. I said to her, listen, um, just do me a favor. I'm going to close my eyes a little bit. I have my headphones. I'm going to put some music on and just allow myself to sort of get back into my body, you know, and just allow my mind to get back into sync. So and the, and the weird part is my youngest niece and my and my oldest nephew, who at the time was maybe two or three years old, they're behind me and they're kicking on the seat behind me going, hey, why do you have your headphones on? Why do you have headphones on? And I have to explain to them, hey, like, um, you know, I, I have these on because, you know, for me interacting with a lot of people, it, it gets tiring after a while. I need, I sort of need this to calm down. I need this to sort of get in there. And they were kind enough to stop like kicking the seat behind me and to stop and allow me to sort of to focus, you know? And I mean, having moments to myself, having moments where I get to meditate and I get to sort of not focus on everyone else and focus inward and not have to worry and get anxious about social situations. That's great. That's a, for me, a, a challenging aspect. And I, and I still have other challenging aspects and I, I'm not perfect. I don't, necessarily do the best at that same scenario and like there are times where i won't even have my music available so i have to find other solutions and those are more difficult situations but yeah i mean that that's a challenging aspect not probably not the most challenging but definitely a challenging one yeah i you know not to not to speak for you armand but i've always just been amazed um just really i'm always i've always been really impressed by by you and also just other members of the community that that i know because Things that neurotypical individuals see as a non-event, a non-issue, something to not even think twice about can sometimes be an incredible effort for somebody, you know, with autism. And so it's really something that needs to be appreciated about individuals of the community is that y'all work your ass off. <laughs> y'all really do work your ass off to, to do a lot of different things that people who are neurotypical um, simply take for granted. Yeah. It, it takes a lot of mental Pilates. Let me put it that way. It takes a lot of mental Pilates to be in that type of situation. And I'm <laughs> very lucky to be surrounded mainly by grownups. So like, it's like- Right, which is it, good. So it allows me to sort of be on that level. I can be like the plus one to my mother. She has to go somewhere, you know? And yeah, in, in the absence of my father, I sort of had to be that. So yeah, I, it's it's a challenging aspect, but you know, it helped me grow. It's helped me develop as a person, develop as- an advocate develop as a lot of these because I've been able to conquer a lot of these challenges. There's some challenges that are still remaining, um, but I'm getting there. That's the beautiful part. Yeah. I'm getting there. Absolutely. That's great. Yeah. So next question, the show, The Good Doctor portrays a person that has autism and is played by an abler body. So my question is what is what aspects of his acting make it offensive or not offensive in your opinion? Now, we touched upon this a little bit in the beginning. Um, I like The Good Doctor personally. And like it's not really an offensive portrayal because the writers of the show were able to realize that Sean Murphy is not just autistic. He's not an autistic person, but not not autistic first. Let me just say that he is a person first. He is a doctor by nature. He just also happens to be someone who is autistic. And yeah, there are moments where that's going to show. I love, by the way. I mean, he is, and this is not really appropriate to say, but quote unquote 
high functioning. You know what I'm going to say, quote unquote, but like he's, it, it affects him, but not in a very negative way. And I love the fact how they handle it. So for example, there's a episode, I think it's in season two, where he has a meltdown in the middle of all this because everyone's yelling, the light is blinking and he has this meltdown. He's literally in the fetal position on the floor, hands over his ears. And then the other doctor realizes, hey, shut off the light and everyone be quiet for a second. Let him let him get out of it. And he just talks him out of it and is able to resume his job. And then like during the surgery, he just keeps saying, no, 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 has a meltdown, leaves the surgery and they almost pull him off entirely. But then they realize the reason why he said no was that he couldn't do it. It was just, it was very difficult and he would need assistance. So they were able to talk it out and do that. And then a beautiful example is the episode where his father dies and not the whole thing. His father has been portrayed as this abusive guy who never really understood his autism. And this is the first time you really see the Leah Sean relationship even develop. He starts breaking down. He starts having a meltdown and immediately you see um, Leah run into the room and realize what's going on and just get him on the bed and not like wrestle him to the ground, but at least gently, you know, get him onto the bed. That, that like, I know we're talking about prone restraint, but this isn't prone restraint. This is being gentle and being kind and understanding, oh, like, I know what's going on. I understand it. So now I'm going to do my best to help you out. And if it doesn't work, I'm going to try something else, you know? So it's difficult to find really any flaws with the good doctor. I mean, yeah, it's not going to be betraying like every member of the spectrum, but it does a very good job at it. So like, I love the fact that Freddie Highmore is there. The only complaint I have about the show, which I've said in the break as well, is that he should be getting more Emmy nominations out of it. But other, other than that, I have no issue with it whatsoever. Yeah. I'm not even sure that I have too much to add because I think you really covered so much of it. I think, you know, just to sort of take what you were saying and, and throw it a little bit broader, I think what the show's strength is, is in nuance and in complexity and not just, you know, it's not just showing an individual with autism in a scenario, rather it is an entire complex world with interweaving plot lines and complicated relationships and ever never ending dramatic premises with a really strong character at the center who also happens to have autism. And it's that distinction that has allowed this show to really warm the hearts of a lot of individuals and really, you know, be sort of that calling card for the community as this is strong representation. I think, you know, like I was saying, like I've said a few times in the show, no representation is perfect of anything um, unless, until we have individuals on the spectrum consistently playing roles that are written with a lot of research, with a lot of conversations about specificity and nuance of an individual, we'll never see a perfect representation. But damn, if this wasn't a good shot. You know, I think that that is what is really important about the show is that since this show has had so much success and given the community something to, to hold up as strong representation, we're only going to see better representation moving forward. And it also set a certain precedent of what you know, is working for the community, what doesn't work for the community, and has allowed individuals to feel like they can speak up as new representations and new films and new TV shows come out um, about how they truly feel versus just feeling grateful for the one representation that they get to have, which isn't fair for anybody. I also must add, I didn't realize this until not too long ago. If you look at the credits, how the good doctor is spelled, they have the infinity sign there for the two O's. Really? 
Yeah, they do. I didn't realize that. It's like, I think they're aware of how important this is. So they want to include intentionally mm. uh, the symbol for the community. So it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's absolutely, I, I get chill sometimes just thinking about that, you know, and I want to just tip my hats off to, to David Shore, to ABC Disney, who um, of course runs the show to the cast, the crew, because you guys are doing a tremendous service to this community. I don't think you guys even realize what you how tremendous this service is, but if you do, my hat's off to you guys. If any of you are listening to this, which I doubt, um, but still, my hat's off to you guys. Uh, final question, uh, what, are some, what are some of the biggest challenges for neurodiverse actors in the film and television industry? And Maddie, I think I'm gonna leave you on this one. Sure, yeah. So I think some of the greatest challenges, there are quite a few to be upfront, to be frank about it. Simply put, when it comes to larger productions and larger studios and um, projects that are involving millions to hundreds of millions of dollars, it's very challenging to ask individuals who are investing in this to take any sort of perceived risk, period. And so when you haven't presented individuals who are neurodiverse in these roles before, that is inherently considered a risk to a financial backer. So that's sort of the largest issue that I think neurodiverse actors have when it comes to being cast in different roles. Second is the issue of typecasting. So the issue of, the, of it's the issue of how a neurodiverse person will be considered only eligible to play roles in which they are neurodiverse until again, that is proven otherwise. Should that be the case? Absolutely not. But that is most certainly something that neurodiverse actors are facing at the moment is that they are being seen as, oh, you can play with autism. You can play a role of somebody with ADHD, but you can't play a love interest in this romantic comedy because how could that ever work, right? Which is simply a, a very, very frustrating, which is just simply a really frustrating element that I really hope to see change. On the smaller, kind of more independent productions, which is sort of more where, where my films exist, the greatest struggle that we have is simply resources and simply time. So the largest difficulty with telling stories that involve individuals, particularly, you know, if in my films, for example, that are more affected um, with autism, is that it is going to take more time than it would take to shoot this sort of film with someone who isn't on the spectrum or someone who is less affected on the spectrum, for example, simply just due to the fact that it's going to take a little bit longer to establish that kind of connection with someone who's more affected. And let's say they've never been in a film before, then it's working with that individual and, and you know, ensuring that turning on lights that might shine bright in their eyes isn't going to be greatly uncomfortable for that person. You know, it's all these little intricacies and so in, in my experiences, a lot of my films, you know, I just came out of film school. So most of my films were through film school where I only had three to five weeks to put these together. And so in my films, I have cast neurotypical individuals and that has always broken my heart throughout that process. And I've always wanted to do something different, but I was not going to be able to accurately, faithfully and truthfully portray this character, period in the amount of time with the non-budget that was existing. And so that's sort of the different, you know, barriers that neurodiverse actors come up. That's sort of the different barriers that neurodiverse actors come up to in both 
sides of this uh, process, whether there's millions of dollars on the line or $150 of, you know, your own money that you're throwing into your film. And so to see that change, I think a lot of different things have to happen. One is we have to simply see more of these stories. We have to be able to say that there are so many different stories of individuals that may or may not be neurodiverse that are interacting in different ways that create these awesome plot lines. And later on, you realize, oh, this person acts this way because they're on the spectrum. You know, things like that have to become a lot more commonplace for us then to ensure that the proper resources are instilled throughout every element of this process so that neurodiverse actors can feel comfortable, can feel like they have the strongest of connections with the right writers, with the right directors, in the right conditions, with the right, you know, sort of attention to detail for these individuals to let them shine in their art form. And I think that it's going to take time. But what I really appreciate and have always appreciated about this community, whether it's individuals on the spectrum themselves or family members, is we don't give up. This is not a community that quits. This is not a community that ever says that they're going to be complacent with what they're seeing if it's not working for them. And so I think it's only a matter of time. Exactly. Never back down. And so I really do believe that it's only a matter of time before we're going to be seeing awesome representation, awesome characters in these great settings that are always going to sit with us as a great sort of treasure in a community that every day is working their butt off to see a better day. So um, let's get into the course of action. What? So let, let, let's start first with, um, with creators, especially um, neurotypical creators, because we have a lot, like, a, a lot of neurotypical creators who want to probably help. So what exactly for, for them first, what do, we, what do you think they should be doing? Yeah, I love that question because I think that this is one that I can answer, right? This is one that I don't have to um, feel as though I'm not the right person to answer because as a neurotypical creator, this is something that, you know, very much is in my wheelhouse to talk about. I think the first thing to do is if you want to make, if you want to engage with these kinds of stories, if you want to tell neurodiverse stories, the first thing you have to do is ensure that you are in a sort of environment in which you know many different individuals who are neurodiverse themselves, whether that's a personal connection of a family sort, or maybe you met somebody in your workplace, something like that. And if you genuinely have a friendship with these individuals, you're going to be a much stronger sort of, well, what I'm trying to say is when you're a creator, when you're a filmmaker, when you're sort of any sort of creative person, you are the caretaker of a story. And if you want to caretake a story about a community that is not yours, it's incredibly important that you have relationships in those communities and you've put yourself in the shoes of those individuals to the best of your abilities, that you've collaborated with other people who do identify as a member of that community to ensure that as you caretake the story and walk it from an idea to production to suddenly being this piece that you can call your own, that throughout it, you've remained authentic and you've remained true. And so if you're a neurotypical creator who really wants to you know, jump into some of these amazing stories, because there is no shortage of wonderful stories about neurodiverse people, then the first thing that you have to do is look within yourself and see where are your intentions coming from and who is the next best call that you can make to someone who can talk to you about getting more involved in the community, understanding the intricacies and the nuances of what it means to be a member of the autism community and also what it means to be an advocate and ensure that you're that person first before you're harboring a story about a community that isn't your own. And I must add also for neurotypical creators who don't feel like they have something to say, but they want to get in there, 
there are plenty of neurodiverse creators, especially on the internet nowadays, that do something to say, whether it be me or the Paige Lales or the Beck Spectrums of the world. There are so many out there. It's literally becoming a massive, massive thing. So reach out to them, collaborate with them, say, hey, I want to do something. Help me out here. I want to be able to do something that is, you know, that does this community proud and we're able to do something authentic and proud and powerful. I mean, Maddie, I mean, you are a very talented filmmaker. You understand it. But then I also know there are probably some times where you might want to reach out for help and, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, I reached out to you. You didn't reach out to me for this one, but when, you know, in, in the future, like, obviously I think we could probably collaborate on something. You know, we can probably do something together that shows a different side to autism that not many people would have seen. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I appreciate you saying that. I think that, you know, not only do I appreciate that just, you know, just hearing it from you, but it also shows that you're an individual and it sounds like a lot of the people that you surround yourself with are the kinds of individuals who have no shortage of, great advice to offer of time to contribute and of generosity to share about their experiences and ensuring that, you know, you're able to take that story and, and present something really beautiful. So in terms of now, we'll shift from the neurotypical filmmakers to now studio heads, for example. Now, obviously, I know you can't really speak for these guys, but like, what can we do in terms of manipulating that in order to get them to suddenly think about, okay, maybe we should start considering doing this? Because once they consider it, that's actually a very big step. Absolutely. Yeah. Huge step. I think the first step is it's actually super similar, I think, to the conversation that's being held about diversity generally in Hollywood and entertainment in that convincing studio heads that there is a market, that there is an audience showing that there is a very committed group that is more than excited about these kinds of stories and will, you know, pay that $7.99, that $7.99 a month to suddenly have a Hulu subscription just to see that show. It's those sort of numbers that really can shift a studio head's mind into looking more critically at these kinds of stories. And the truth simply is that these markets are absolutely there. We have been shown that time and time and time again, right? And so ensuring that we have the proper sort of research and, and, and uh, you know, there's this great researcher, Dr. Stacy Smith, who's out of USC, and she talks all about diversity and representation in media and does constant research on that. It's getting actually, I think, a little bit more of an academic intellectual approach to the numbers, to the data, to, you know, if a movie passes the Bechdel test. You know, it's all these sort of things that when we can condense this information, get it more widespread and, you know, allow the individuals who get the opportunity to green light shows to see that you don't just have to tell a Tom Cruise Mission Impossible story to have huge success to really speak to an entire community and make all of your profit back quite simply, then we're going to be able to see a lot of, of heads turn, a lot of minds change. Hulu, just listen up. We just found a way for you to make $48 million. That's right. <laughs> we just found a way to make, help you guys make more money. So like, just, just call us up. Yes, call, call us up. We just helped you guys make $48 million. We expect some royalties. <laughs> um, no, okay. So we're almost towards the end of the show. Um, now we're going to talk quickly about our choice for book of the month. And we came up with the same thing. We did. Actually, that cracked me up. Um, yeah, we chose Temple Grandin's book. Yep, we chose Thinking in Pictures, and I chose that. First of all, if Temple Grandin did not speak, she she opened the door by for people like me, for Paige, for for Beck, for um, Tiffany Cavanaugh, for pretty much everybody on that 
in our community, she opened the door for all of us to really talk about it. If she had not opened her mouth um, and said something, I don't know who would have. Like, it's it's honestly amazing, like, the impact that she had and just the representation that she has, you know, and how, her documenting her own story, being so authentic about it and not, like, leaving one bit of it off. And, you know, obviously they adapted it uh, into that movie on HBO, Temple Grandin, which is just a phenomenal movie. Um, won a lot of Emmys. Actually, Claire Danes also won in the end, won the Emmy for playing Temple, which is absolutely, and it's also Temple Grandin approved. She's ex- She's been so enthusiastic about how much she loves that movie. And, you know, the book itself is amazing too. So um, Maddie, why'd you pick it? Yeah, I actually chose it for, I actually chose it for a few reasons. I think the first one is a lot of, you know, like like you said, I think just the individual Temple Grandin is someone that everybody should be familiar with because of the profound impact she's had for for the community and just the incredible person that she is. But I also thought it had a really interesting sort of parallel to exactly what we're talking about today. You know, it's thinking in pictures. It's her story of how she uses her mind visually to sort of tackle these complex problems that um, often neurotypical individuals see a completely different way and, and the ways that she was able to, to challenge preconceived notions through these incredible sort of 3D images that she talks about being able to construct in her mind, you know, at a moment's notice. And so I thought that was a kind of an interesting parallel to what we're talking about today, just in, when it comes to the visual format and talking about the importance of um, portraying things accurately. And I loved that, you know, although for very different circumstances, you know, Temple Grandin was more involved in a lot of the engineering and agriculture and things like that. But it's just this idea that seeing something differently can always amount to an incredible insight to positive change and overall just to an exciting storyline. So anything that um, we didn't cover that you want to go over right now? I think that, you know, one, just my kind of parting thoughts would be that as somebody who's neurotypical herself and has always been sort of, you know, immersed in this community just because my brother and, you know, everything that comes with that, I think that if you're somebody who's listening to this and thinking, man, I know nothing about autism, I didn't know it was a spectrum, I have only heard this word thrown around every once in a while and sometimes as a joke, Um, in maybe even sort of a negative context, it is never too late to jump in and teach yourself about this community. I think that one thing that you'll often find as you begin to talk to individuals who are autistic themselves or talk to family members who have someone in their family with autism, you're going to find some of the most gracious individuals. You're going to find some of the, you know, some people who have really been through the ringer and back in many cases, just because society at the moment isn't constructed for a lot of the challenges that come for individuals. You know, I'm, I'm talking specifically from the perspective of someone, you know, who's the sister of uh, a very affected individual. Society isn't built for, for folks like that in every capacity. And so what you find is are individuals who have been through really difficult situations, who have gotten themselves through some things that many people would never even fathom, and yet still have the sort of generosity and graciousness to have really open conversations and are often really willing to teach. So I just wanted to sort of put that out there that this is a community that is very inviting, that is like looking for eager individuals to join in the conversation and move the needle forward together. Maddie, as a filmmaker, as the daughter of one of my favorite podcasting hosts of all time, as someone who constantly tries to help people in that community, it is my honor to say thank you for being on this show. Of course, give me give your dad a huge uh, thumbs up and thank you from me. And of course, give Braden um, as gracious of a thank you for allowing you know us to... Re- 
allowing you to really come into this world and really to understand what we're going through. It's just, it's been so awesome having you on the show. I really appreciate you being here. Oh, thank you, Armand. I can't thank you enough for this opportunity. And it's been great just to have a chance to talk about something that is so often on my mind, but not always finding the ears to um, have this information fall onto. So this has been a great privilege. And I can't believe that we met each other over 10 years ago. So it's it's pretty awesome to to get to really catch up in this way now. Absolutely. Maddie, well, thank you so much for your time and your patience. Um, there has been quite a lot of information as we went through throughout the entire episode. If you want to go back to the beginning right now and just re and reabsorb it again, you can. But we talked about so many things about how much the paradigm has shifted in the last 30 years, how actors can be held accountable, how we can change the studio system, how we can change through independent films. We've done so much already and we have so much further to go. Just try to understand the content, try to understand the community is really not that difficult to do. Um, just as a reminder for both our books of the month, we chose Thinking in Pictures written by, in my humble opinion, the woman that opened the door for autism advocacy, Dr. Temple Grandin. Um, it's an amazing read and something I think you should definitely listen to if you want to learn more about autism in the spectrum. But how do you find that book? It's very, very simple. You go to our website, www.shadowgalsemis.com, and you click on the book of the month tab. You can purchase them via Amazon in hardback, paperback, Kindle. Oh, yeah, with um, our also with our sponsor, Audible. Um, as this is a show about education and information, there tends to be a lot of reading done. However, there's so many hours in a day and there's so many books out there to read. When you consider driving in various activities, it becomes so much more challenging to pick up a book and to read, which also could partially explain why America's literacy rate is slowly going down. Um, anyway, Audible is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment from podcasts like ours to audiobooks with an unlimited range of genres and thousands of titles to choose from. And by the way, if you don't have Audible, don't worry, we can hook you up. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash shadow gal semis, that's shadow, G-A-L-L-S-E-M-I-S, you can get a free 30-day trial with credits for a free audiobook. Or if you're a member of Amazon Prime, you will get that same 30 free trial with credits for two audiobooks. That's right. That means for 30 days free, you can get Audible and listen to Thinking in Pictures. That would be great, right? So folks, when you think of leading the listening revolution, you think of Audible. And while you do that, you check out the rest of our beautiful website. Do not forget to subscribe to all of our social media at Shadow Gal Semis. That's Shadow, G-A-L-L-S-E-M-I-S, -L -L -E all one word. After that, if you haven't yet subscribed to the show via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Audible, leave us a written review, maybe even five stars. Honestly, that would be amazing. So we've got some pretty big things planned in March. I'm going to be reviewing that through social media, but we're not talking about March. We're talking about right now. I want to thank everyone involved in the making of this episode, including Maddie Bull, and in particular, Kieran Barenton, who allowed us to use this fantastic remix of Dave Brubeck's Take 5 as the opening to this show. Thank you all so much for listening, and remember, in an age where awareness is paramount, scientia potentia, let's learn together. We'll see you next time from the gallery. This has been an LLD production.